0: Welcome to episode number 11 of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you find a career you love, start a business, and generally crush it at life. I'm Justin Gordon, your host and an MBA student in the class of 2020 at the USC Marshall School of Business. I've had my head in entrepreneurship and business since 2012 when I launched Just Go Fitness, and now with Just Go Grind. In this episode, we have Aaron Halper, the founder and CEO of The Upside, which you can find at betheupside.com. Erin is on a mission to change the way working works. The upside, you can see their mission, it's we support solo entrepreneurs and connect them with businesses seeking best-in-class, scalable, flexible, and on-demand senior-level talent. Basically, Aaron uses her experience with consulting for seven years and even a career before that to essentially help people start their own consulting businesses, and she's growing a community around that. In the episode, we talk about how she started the upside, of course, of course, we have to talk about the founding story, but we also talk about her own consulting company and how she ran that for seven years, how she grew that, where where she took that business, and then why she ultimately ended up deciding to start the upside from that. Talk about company culture. We talk about avoiding burnout in your career, even going into her story of how she started a handbag company while she was working full time. Very impressive. Very impressive. She's an incredible woman, and we talk about a lot of different things. You can find all the show notes for this episode at JustGoGrind.com slash podcast. Support the show or at Patreon.com slash JustGoGrind, and leave a rating and review over in iTunes. Just search JustGoGrind. Hope you enjoy this episode with Aaron Halper, founder and CEO of The Upside. Aaron, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks so much for having me.
0: We are finally up and running after some technical <laughs> difficulties, but I'm glad we made it work. Uh, I was introduced to you through Christina Calabrese in the Dreamers and Doers group that a tremendous amount of like, amazing ladies are in. And I've been connected to a few of them, including yourself. I was curious to know your involvement in the group.
1: Oh, my God. Well, first of all, this group, I, I mean, it, it really changed my life i mean i can honestly say it it's it was life-changing and i always advise any woman or man in business employees anybody everybody should have a group a community that they're a part of um, that can that can support whatever it is they're doing so i got introduced to this group through someone i actually met on like a mom facebook board um from manhattan and we got to talking and we were laughing, and she said, you know, you would be perfect for, for joining Dreamers and Doers. And I had no idea what that was. I was like three months, four months out starting my business. And as soon as I read about it and learned about it, I immediately joined for the entire year. And um, it's been amazing. It's it's just a whole network of other women who are also doing big things or wanting to do big things and everybody supports each other. And it's, it's been life-changing. I've met a million friends through it. It's awesome.
0: Yeah. It sounds like such a tremendous place to learn and grow and connect. And there's not that many of them out there. It seems like.
1: I I mean, it's funny. There are, and there aren't. That that
0: are good. I'm saying.
1: I don't know. I only needed, (laughs) I, I joined. I mean, you know, the the woman who runs it, her name is um, Geisha Haas. Um, She's just amazing. And, and, you know, it's really a top-down organization where the the values and the culture really stem from her. And what I think is really special and unique about the group amongst many things, but is that the group is not about her. So what I see is there's a lot of groups where there's like a guru that's like, you know, be like me, or I'm going to teach you how to do this. And they've got tens and thousands, sometimes even millions of followers in this community and group, but her group, it's not about her, it's about the members. And, and she just moderates and curates um, and, and makes sure the values are, are instilled, but it's not about her being the guru. And that's, I guess, what's really appealing to me. And she, meanwhile, she's amazing, but she's like the most modest person. She deserves so, so many accolades and she's just super humble, super modest, even though she's super accomplished. And I think people, you know, women are drawn to her and drawn to that and, and drawn to the group because of the values that she instills. And so, yes, there are other groups out there, but I find that they tend to be about one person being a guru.
0: Right, different, t- totally different thing. And from everyone I've talked to so far about this group, it, it seems like it's just a tremendous place. And that's why I, I'd love to shout it out in the beginning of the episode because oh, yeah. I think it's worthwhile.
1: It is <laughs> so, worthwhile. And I think the other value, it, and I would advise anybody who's looking for a group, you know, she's all about quality over quantity, which is very much what I'm about. And you feel that in the group. It's a super high quality group but it's not tens of thousands of people it's you know several hundred people and it makes it intimate and valuable because it's this sort of high quality environment
0: right completely understand that
1: yeah and everyone's and, paying to be there too which makes a big
0: difference right so they want to be there you have to have that even uh, I was looking at some research a couple of years ago about someone mentioned you know paying for something obviously you value it more so having a free group is just not the same
1: yeah, because well that's you for don't have people. have the same investment. Right, well those are for pe- the gurus who are trying to get massive quantity. Um, you know, it's it's <laughs> you know, it's econ 101, right? So if you make something free, you'll get more, but the quality and engagement may not be there.
0: Right, exactly right. And you mentioned like with you've kind of found it through your entrepreneur path and journey and everything and we're going to get to your company the upside, but I'm curious early on in your career, what roles did you start in and how did you kind of find them? I know you did marketing, but how did you find that first role and why why marketing?
1: Well, first of all, I was always going to do marketing. That it's- You were. Always, I mean, I'm saying always like eight years old, nine years old, like I absolutely loved marketing. I still do, I've, I've always been fascinated by how the shape of a letter which of course we call a font can affect how somebody feels <laughs> about a product. How is it that different a different one-shaped A versus a different shaped A can actually affect how someone feels, have emotion about a product. So, so in colors, you know, why certain colors affect how people feel about a product or service. What drives people to enjoy a product or service? Beyond just the actual product itself, Um, these are things that fascinate me and always have my whole entire life. So the first job I ever got was um, actually out of desperation because I graduated right in 2001, which was sort of um, one of the tech bubble pops. So no jobs. And I was basically like, okay, well, I'm going to move to New York and whatever I get, I get. And we'll see where that leads me because I, we, my, my year, you know, we just didn't have choices. So, um, so I ended up be getting a job as an assistant, somebody's assistant at a company called Frederick Bikai, um, their corporate office. So they were, um, they had a line of really high-end salons and hair care products and some accessories. And that was my first job. And I was like, okay, so I guess maybe now I'll be in the beauty industry and that'll be my path. <laughs> and um, th- it, it did not turn out that way. I did not enjoy working in the beauty industry. So um, <laughs> I loved the company. It was a great company I had great friends. It was a fun place to work, but um, the beauty industry, I, I just kind of realized I'm, I'm working for It just wasn't fulfilling at the end of the day. It didn't mean much to me. So that was a good nine-month experience because in the fall was September 11th. So that was my first year out of school in New York City. So after September 11th, everything changed and um, my whole department got laid off and I had to start over anyway. So it was actually um, an opportunity to basically press the reset button.
0: Right, and were you thinking about yeah, you know, said 9 months in kind of that happened everyone got laid off. How long into that company were you thinking oh, I'm probably not going to work here long?
1: Uh, about 2 months.
0: I <laughs> see that's exact that's that's kind of what I thought.
1: Yeah.
0: And I wonder <laughs> why did you stay in it just because you had the job and um, you, like didn't know what poor. else to do?
1: I was broke. Yeah. I did not I mean I was living in New York. This is okay, now yeah. this is like forever ago. We're talking 2001, which, right. you know, it seems like yesterday to me, but I guess it's really not. And I mean, we, yeah. So, um, so you know, I was completely broke. I was literally living paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth, like eating rice and like steamed veggies for dinner sometimes. And go, I used to go on dates just to have, you know, like a meal. I mean, I was like, right. oh, it'll be a free dinner. Cause I mean, I literally was living in this, you know, 200 square foot apartment in the East Village, this walk up. It was great, but, you know, tiny. I was paying $1,175 a month for that apartment, which seems like a steal now, but it was really expensive at the time. And um, after paying taxes and rent, uh, I think I had about $600 to last me throughout the rest of the month. So. Oh wow. Yeah. So it was like really tight. So I didn't really have the the luxury of just quitting. And, yeah. And keep in mind there was no LinkedIn, there's no Facebook or iPhones or any of this stuff. So it wasn't that easy to just find a job while you were working. So basically, I got laid off, which meant I got unemployment, which actually ended up being as much as I was making anyway. <laughs> <laughs> sadly enough. So, oh. so I was like, great. I'm basically making what I was making anyway. Um, And i will give me a couple <laughs> months just to basically look full time, you know, look for something full time.
0: And knowing you had that marketing, you know, you liked marketing a lot. Did you immediately say, yeah, of course I'm going to find another marketing job or what were you looking for back then? Obviously, like you said, no LinkedIn, uh, none of that, but What kind of role were you looking for
1: at that point? So, what did I do after September 11th? So, basically, I got laid off. I was making the same amount with unemployment as I was full-time job working at this company. So, it gave me the freedom to really take a couple of months and look full-time for another job, which was a huge, huge luxury at the time. Even though I still wasn't making enough to barely scrape by, I um i mean like barely anything i it was enough to to pay my rent and and take a couple of months to to look full time for a job and basically i just networked my way into another job i anybody that i came in contact with at all knew who i was and what i was looking for and i just knew eventually somebody would know somebody cuz again this was before Facebook and LinkedIn and iPhones—it just we weren't as connected as we are now. And so I met a guy at a party who I went to college with, just one semester. We didn't even we didn't even know each other, but because we were both alumnus alumni of of the same school, um, he gave me a shot. And they were hiring a first year analyst at a venture capital firm.
0: So you so you were in venture venture capital, you said.
1: Yes. So I, I basically went from marketing assistant at a beauty company to an analyst in venture capital. I, I completely started from scratch. I just said, forget the past six months or whatever it was at Frederick the Chi, I'm just going to start all over. And I ended up getting a job through somebody I went to college with. He said, You know, we're hiring a first year analyst. It's a venture capital firm, a, kind of the scrappy VC. Um, are you interested? So I, I said, Yes. I had no idea what an analyst was or what they did, but it was a step in the door for at a VC, which was really, really hard to do back then because there weren't nearly as many. And yeah. when I got started, I realized, Oh, this is a lot of Excel, a lot of math, a lot of analytics, hence, the word analyst. And <laughs> I I was like, I don't really care for this. Right. And I, I don't think I was really that great at it. But what they realized was I was really great at marketing and they ended up they ended up, um, creating a position for me where I was essentially the director of marketing going into all the portfolio companies, helping them with their marketing needs. So even though I I tried to go away from that and go in the venture capital analytical direction, marketing still found me. So, so (laughs) it really was just in my blood from the very beginning.
0: Yeah. And so you, you found that role basically yeah, unintentionally, essentially you're trying to get out and then you just got pulled back in from that role. Like, how, how was that position or what was this thing? What did you enjoy about that position
1: at the at the VC? Yeah, um, that position was. Really, really unique because they didn't have any marketing people there. And I had an opportunity to to essentially be the only marketing person and carve my own way. But the the bad side was I had no one to learn from when it came to marketing. So I I guess ended up being a self-taught marketing director, but I was able to leverage that position into much bigger positions as I as I as I progressed in my career. So it ended up serving me very, very well. So that role was what I would call kind of, it was kind of so-so. It sounds very glamorous, but it was, you know, because I was the only marketing person, you know, I I would say it wasn't as exciting or well-respected as the analysts. And that was frustrating to me. So I stayed for a while and ended up leveraging it for a much bigger position. and. So I kind of look at that job as the stepping stone. And I also, to be honest, in that job, I learned a lot about myself. So forget the skills I picked up. I I learned so much about speaking up for myself and moving on when when it was time to move on. It wasn't like a very healthy environment, in my opinion. Um, Okay. And I had to, it was a little bit toxic and I had to leave it. But also while I was there, I started a handbag company. So I was already ready, ready, (laughs) like slightly disgruntled. And, um, you know, a lot of, you know, unkept promises and things like that happened. So I was getting a little bit disgruntled and I was still a little bit broke. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to start a business because I basically have nothing to lose at this point. And I you know, I was in my early 20s. I had a lot of energy. I was like, I can do this while I'm still working, which was a total joke. I did it, but I burnt out in a year. So I was literally working full time and our office was on 7th and like 36th Street. So right in the fashion district. And I literally would go to fabric stores and my factory was on 27th Street. I would go over to the factory during my lunch hour, coffee breaks. And then when I left work at six o'clock, I would go do more work in the fashion district and look at buttons and buckles. And I mean, I was doing everything locally. It was insane. And it was just insane. I mean, I can't even believe when I look back, I can't even believe I did it. But so I always call it, you know, my my real life MBA, uh, because that's exactly what it was. I literally crammed that business into one year. I made my own website, which at the time was very unusual. There was no Wix or Squarespace. So, um, yeah, I did everything myself. And I took on a business partner who promised to balance my skill set. So. He wanted to get into the company. He he saw an opportunity, and he um, he uh, in the end just did not deliver what he was supposed to deliver. And I just by the end, I was like, you know what, this is not worth it anymore. I had burnt out. I wasn't passionate about it, and I closed shop and started all over again.
0: <laughs> wow, I, I definitely have a few questions <laughs> related to this. The, the inception of that, so a handbag company, what exactly propelled you into that? Or, like, when was the idea of, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to start a handbag company? I have a full time job. That's okay. Uh, I'm just going I, to do this know, anyways. What, what was I guess start, because I was young
1: and because no one told me I couldn't, I just didn't see why not. Um, and I guess I also, that was during a time. So my college years were the years where the Kate Spade little black square nylon handbag was really popular. And that thing was really expensive. And I was like, that is a black box. And it is, in my opinion, I was like, that is so ugly. I was like, if that woman can make, can be successful with that, a nylon black (laughs) box with like a logo on it, I was like, anybody can do that. And I just, that's what I thought. I was like, that's a joke. That's, it's gotta be so easy. And it wasn't easy because the fact of the matter is at that time, and it's not that this way now, but at that time, you couldn't, you could, you basically had to manufacture in China or, or lose money. And you couldn't manufacture in China unless you had volume. And so I was caught in this in between where I didn't have enough volume to manufacture in China, but by manufacturing in the States or in New York city, my margins were, I was basically breaking even every time I sold something. So it just, it didn't make sense at all. But I, but I, I learned that as I, as I, I, of course I didn't know that at first, (laughs) but yeah, here's the other thing I did. I was trying, this was before subscription boxes. And my idea was sort of the infancy of what is now subscription boxes. And I, I knew that beauty companies, having come from the beauty industry for that short time, I knew that beauty companies needed a way to get samples into customers' hands. And Even though you would think that would be easy to do, because of course, everyone likes free samples, it was really hard. And I was always fascinated by the fact that Frederick Fakai, when I was there, they provided all the shampoos for Ritz-Carlton at the time. And I could not believe that Ritz-Carlton didn't pay them for it. So we were providing all the shampoos. And these were very expensive shampoos, and they, they were luxury, I mean, like, 20 something dollars a bottle for a shampoo and we were giving this stuff away to rich Carlton customers. And then when I really learned that it was a way to get the brand in front of um, an affluent clientele, I was like, Oh, okay. Now I, now I get it. Okay. I see it's like a marketing cost basically. And so then I understood that beauty companies need a way to get their products into the hands of a certain clientele. So what I did with the handbags was every handbag came with a cosmetic bag that was filled with samples. So I was going out to beauty companies and basically saying, hey, send me your samples and I will put them in this bag. And every customer that buys this $300 handbag is going to have a sample of your product in their hand. And it was really cute and really cool. It was before Birchbox. It was before any of that stuff. And that side of the business took off. Everybody wanted to send me samples. But by, and by the time I closed up the handbag business, I was like, you know what? That should have been my business. <laughs> it should have been sampling. That that is a business. And then Birchbox <laughs> launched a few years later. So clearly that was the business model. And I was just course, too burnt out to pursue it after the handbag stuff. You know. What did I just
0: you do to, to approach these companies for samples? Or how did you go about approaching them? I. Just make a list. Literally email them, uh, walk in the door and, and ask them
1: when I tell you, because again, this was a different wow. time. This was now 2003. This was again, pre iPhone. Yeah. There's no smartphones, no Facebook, no LinkedIn. It was not even websites weren't what they are today. It wasn't that easy to find people. I went to a, um, a trade show that was for like you know, unique, like small beauty brands. And, and that's who I approached. And I said, if you want to get your product into this type of person's hands, um, you can participate. And I wasn't, the business model was eventually I was going to charge them for it. But I started out, just, just give me the product and I will distribute it. And I figured if I, you know, once I had proof of concept, I could start charging for it. And that would be part of the business model. But again, that was the business. And I should have just had that as the business, which is exactly what Birchbox does. But um, you know, at the time, I just—I don't know—I I was young, and I just thought, "Ooh, handbags—that's—that's that's the model." And no, it was not the model. That was a dumb, dumb, dumb idea. So, <laughs> um, yeah.
0: So, so with that, I mean, you would have loved to have do more, done more with the samples. What do you think you could have done? Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I'm just curious from a pure like what you possibly going back would have done. What would you done? Well, it's
1: not. I wouldn't have done anything differently necessarily because ultimately I had to go through that process to 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 really discover what was important and understand how business, you know. I was I was basically going into a very traditional business model, which was not a good idea. Um, and then thinking that, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And it just wasn't that easy. And, and for years, people would connect me with, with women who wanted to start these types of businesses. Oh, you should talk to Erin. She did this. And every time I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. Like, don't start a handbag company because yeah. unless you have backing, financial backing, I'm like you. It takes a lot more money than you think to to create something like this. And and I was involved with another fashion company um, during the same time where it was someone I was dating and he was starting a company and they had two million dollars in backing and they got into some amazing stores. They had you know, a great team, and it still failed. So it's just now, again, today, it's a little bit different because you have a lot more local manufacturing and it's a lot more cost effective. But at the time, you couldn't really do it cost effectively. You had to have some sort of backing. And, you know, I think there's also this thing where we would see, you know, a brand in a magazine and you think, oh, they must be doing so great. But we know now, I know now, seeing a brand in a magazine means nothing. That doesn't mean anything. So as far as success goes, it does not mean anything. So um, as far as what I would have done differently, I would have taken on a different partner because the partner I took on did not balance out. First of all, he put in no money. It was really all sweat equity. And I put in the money. And um he did not bring to the table what he promised he would. So I would not have taken on that partner. I would have taken on a different partner. And then the other thing I would have done if I can't I couldn't have done it differently, but if I had the magic wand, mm-hmm. I would have given myself another year of excitement without burnout yeah. to pursue the the sampling business. Yeah. Because that obviously we know with Birchbox, you know, that is a business. And I once I discovered that, it was just too late. I just did not have any steam left or money. I had no money left either.
0: Too, too much I've been putting at, at that point in time. So how did you mentally – handle the the stress of the two companies at once was it just a matter of you you had the energy because it's exciting because i've had that feeling before having you know juggled my own like side hustles while i've had full-time jobs and the energy of just like wanting to build something propels you forward i'm just curious on how you did manage doing both
1: how i found the energy to do both yeah. um i really didn't have a choice so i didn't come from a situation where i had like a trust fund and i could just you know not work for a year while I worked on my little business. I, I really, it was just a matter of necessity. I had to work. I, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have funding, and, and I didn't have. And back then, again, it's so different today. But back then, you don't just, you, don't, you couldn't just raise money. It just, that just, you know, today there's so much money, so much VC money. Back then, there wasn't, and VCs—it just was a and a much more traditional legacy business than it is today. And so, I didn't have any money. That's really what it came down to. So, I had to work to pay my bills, and I wanted to start a business. And the only way to do that was to work full time while I did the business. And I guess I was so excited about the idea of having my own business Mm -hmm. that it took over. My energy
0: yeah I, I can relate to that and I think yeah a lot of people if they haven't started will understand like wait how do you like do this and you have a job and what it's like you just love it so much and you want to get it going so you just do it
1: correct so that's I think today it is much easier to find contract work or part-time work where you know you can take your skills that you've been building in your career and become a consultant or um, you know, work part-time for a startup maybe, who could really leverage those skills um, in a scalable way. And then the other hours of the week you can use for your business. I know so many people who are doing that, and even they feel burnt out sometimes juggling the two. But at least you're not spread as thin as I was, where I was going 100, 120 hours a week working through the weekends, like working, I mean, working all the time, you don't have to do that today. But back then it was really hard to find contract work, freelance work, uh, part-time high-level work. You just, it was really hard. So I just didn't do it. Um, I just kept working full time. But I think today there's a lot more opportunities to scale down your full-time gig and scale down that career so that you can make room for your 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 business
0: right yeah that makes complete sense and it was a year roughly a year you were in the handbag business though you know where how did you reach that breaking point of i can't do this anymore
1: Ooh. um well, there were a few realizations. One was I had the wrong partner. So once that light bulb went off, I was like, well, now it's too late now, now, now I'm in it. And, and now I'm realizing this isn't the right business partner. And, you know, that was a little, that was super, super frustrating. Um, another thing that was frustrating was I had a meeting with, um, Nordstrom and, The meeting went really, really well. And I was like, oh, my God, here we go. I'm meeting with Nordstrom. They love the bags. This is so great. And they were basically like, we'll take them on consignment. And I realized that I was just spinning my wheels. I was basically like, they're not going to buy these for me. And even if they did buy them, if they didn't sell them, I'd have to buy them back. And the only way to make, at that time, there wasn't this direct-to-consumer model. So at that time, it was basically like, you're either in a department store or you don't exist. So I needed the department store, but yet I would have had to invest so much into manufacturing for Nordstrom, and if it didn't sell, I'd have to buy them back, and I didn't have the money to do that. So... It just sort of made me realize that I was just not, I, I didn't have it in me to put more money into it. I didn't, I was already just, the momentum wasn't big enough.
0: Yeah, to to It just
1: that. wasn't enough. There were a few little hiccups along the way. I'd gone to like a really small trade show um, that was a total bust because the, the trade show itself, they had reorganized it and they put my section, it was like, a section of like up and coming designers. And they put us in a, in, a, in a place where there was just no foot traffic. And so all of us, it was a bust. We didn't get our money back. No, there was no traffic to our area. There was a lot of little things like that. It was, um, I remember I reached out to um, this store Scoop, I'm sure you've heard of it, um, in New York. And They basically were like, well, you can ship all your bags to us. And then, if we, and then, and then give us a prepaid label and we'll ship them back to you and we'll let you know if we want to carry them. And I was like, you know, I have a showroom. You know, why most people come to a showroom? So it was just little things like that that I was just frustrated one thing after another. I was like, why am I shipping? Why am I paying hundreds of dollars to ship something within New York City? to you, when I have a showroom here that you can come see the bags, like every other normal buyer, but they at the time were very hot. And they were like, we don't need to come to a showroom, you come to us. And I just, it was just one thing after another. I was like, you know what, this is, I hate this business. <laughs> I was like, I just hate, I hate this business. And I think here's the other thing. And I i speak about this a lot. There was no mission behind the business. So it's not like. These handbags funded, you know, education in Nigeria for girls. You know, it didn't, there was no mission that fueled the business. It was literally a handbag company. That's it. And there, it just wasn't substantial enough to keep me motivated when times got really, really tough. So I think, you know, that's a, a, you know, when you're selling widgets, as I was, without having an underlying mission that drives you, it's, it can be very easy to give up, in my opinion.
0: Right, because it seems like, not that it's, well, somewhat pointless, but also more it was like, frivolous. what am I doing? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it was completely frivolous. It was completely, like, just empty, you know, there wasn't, I was, like, what am I killing myself for, for a freaking handbag. And I, I, you know, I realized like, you know, it wasn't so much that it was handbags. It was that I wanted a business. And I said, you know what, I'm 26 years old, I have plenty of time, I'm gonna close this business. It was really disappointing, but I closed it down. And I said, I'm gonna start making money now 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 I'm driven to make money. So so at that point I was like, now I'm going to get a big girl job and I'm going to start making some real money and I'll revisit a business when the time is right. Um, And that's exactly what I did.
0: So what then was the transition into the big girl job, as you mentioned?
1: So I leveraged the old position um, of Working sort of that marketing role at a VC into a a hedge fund, so i I went into the hedge fund world to essentially do more like marketing business development, capital raising. They brought me in to help build out their private equity arm, and they ended up never doing it. But I became really close with the um with the owners and I I really, it was just a great environment to work in. I made a ton of friends there and I had a conversation with them. I was like, look, I can see you guys are not actually going to roll out this product, even though I know you thought you were. And just so you know, like I will support you any way I can while I'm still here, but I will go ahead and start looking for something else. And I think it just gave them a sense of relief that it was like kind of all out there on the table. You know, it was basically like, I get it. Like, I'm not very useful at the moment, and you're (laughs) never going to roll this thing out. So, let me just help you out with whatever I can in the meantime. And just so you know, I'm going to look for something else. And, and it, and you know what? It worked out really great. It was a really short run, but it was probably, I think I was there maybe six months um, before I realized they, it just, you know, they weren't, they, they ended up not pulling the trigger on the private equity arm. So, I leveraged that position through a headhunter and landed my my biggest, best role, which was um, director of marketing for an up-and-coming real estate private equity company. And the, at the time when I started, it was eight people. I was the only marketing person. I was there to basically help them raise capital and also help them source deals it was the perfect fit for me. I absolutely loved it. The management was fantastic. I got really lucky and met just a ton of friends there, had such a good run. And we grew that company from eight people to 50 and from $150 million under management to $2.5 billion. Wow. And yeah, it was awesome. It was a great team and super rewarding. Um, it was just the best job possible. And and that was where I started, you know, saving my money. <laughs> so, what,
0: what was what was it about the company and about the team that made them so great?
1: Well, you know, look, I know it's so cliché, but it's top down. You know, every company, I don't care if it's 5 people or 5,000 people in the company. The culture of a company comes from the top. And the 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 gentleman who who ran this company, he, first of all, he was super passionate about what he did and what he was doing. It was a very niche strategy what he was doing, and it was the type of thing where people were like, well, that's so niche. like you're never gonna you know create a business around that strategy. And he said, well, you know what? I think it is a business, and we're gonna keep pushing and we're gonna keep going. And I remember he used to say, Aaron, it's like, you know turning over rocks to find these deals and yet he knew it was there he knew the deals were there and i loved that about him he was just so driven and passionate about this strategy that it was contagious for for me and i said okay i'm going to keep turning over those rocks i'm going to find those deals for you we're going to keep going we're going to keep going and and i loved that about him he was also just genuinely he actually wanted a great company. He wanted a great company with great people who were friends with each other, who spent time with each other. Who, you know, he wanted that corporate culture, um, and it showed. You know, he he did things like, you know, we did little retreats together, and we had these really intimate, fun, you know, holiday dinners together. And he just, I don't know, I, I felt like he really cared about us, and. And, and it showed he was a good person. He was a good father. He, he had two children at the time. Now he has, um, two children and two stepchildren, but he had two children at the time. They were like eight, 10 years old when I started. Now they've, I don't know, they maybe even graduated college by now, but, um, they were little kids and he was so involved with them. You know, he was picking them up from school sometimes, taking them to appointments. He was, you know, on snow days, they, if school was canceled, they'd come in and sit in the office with us. And it, you know, again, it's top down. He was so involved with his family. And so they were so important to him that it made us feel better about taking time for our own families and for, for us. So, and he also didn't work us to the bones. You know, he, he, we worked hard when we were there, but you know at six o'clock, I felt perfectly fine walking out the door and this was a really big job and most people would say how- how could you just walk out at six o'clock and I just did and you know he never said to me, "You have to stay later," or you know he had his own life too he, and I think also he was just very in front of us, he was very modest and very humble and um. Even though, obviously, he did very well for himself and had a very nice life, he he didn't flash it around the office.
0: Right. He didn't hold that above anyone. Correct. How did your role at the company evolve? As as you go from 8 to 50 people and as you learn more and more and the company changes, how did your role change?
1: I mean, to be honest, I had the same role from the very beginning, but but... As the company grew, so I was doing marketing and business development. Okay. Once the company grew to a certain point, I basically it so the timing was interesting. So the company grew to a point, we were probably about 20, 25 people. At the same time, I had met my now husband. We were engaged um, already. Uh, we were we were in our early 30s, already thinking about starting a family. And the timing was right for me to go to him and say it's the job is now a job and a half because now, you know, we're doing I'm doing capital raising and I'm doing business development, but we've grown to the point now where it's, it's real. It's not two jobs, but it's a job and a half. And I said, I will take the half and you need to hire a full-time business development person just to source deals And to me, it was very obvious that that was the strategy that needed to happen. And luckily, it was like I saw a sense of relief in him. He was like, oh, thank God, you know, I mean, he was immediately like, (laughs) yes, that's a great idea, because he must have seen the same thing. And for me to say, I'll take the step back. I'll take a step aside and I, I will be the half job and you hire someone to be the front, the face of this company and go out and so travel all the time and source deals and meet with people. And it worked out really well. And that was when I started consulting for the first time. So I started a consultancy where I was doing marketing for alternative investment companies and he was my first client. So I was no longer an employee. I was a consultant for them and they scaled me up and down as they needed me. So some weeks I would work five or 10 hours, some weeks I would work 30 hours. And that was perfect for me because I was starting a family and I needed the flexibility and the job really didn't warrant a set amount of hours. It sort of ebbed and flowed with their different, you know, business cycles. So then i would take then i went to my hedge fund boss the one that never launched the private equity arm and i said hey i'm consulting now so if you ever need any work let me know and he became my second client so <laughs> then so all my old bosses became my my first clients and and then i took it from there at that point i was pretty much at capacity but little by little i would take on different projects um, and some of their portfolio companies would hire me for different projects. And and I really had a, a good six, seven year run as a consultant at the same time that I was starting my family and um, needed that type of flexibility.
0: Yeah. And in that consulting role, so you have six or seven years in consulting. How are you? So a lot of that's networking through basically, yeah, you know, people, so you already contact them, but then getting new clients or as a growing that business how did you market yourself or was it literally just those connections and like
1: I didn't have to, to market mouth? myself. And, and right. because what I was doing was so focused. So I was literally marketing in the alternative investment industry. Can you name one or two people, <laughs> people who do that? Probably not. Right. So yeah. <laughs> what it ended up being was I, I was the go-to person for that. So in the end, I actually turned away probably two dozen clients over the stretch of six or seven years, because I didn't have the bandwidth to take them on. And the, you know, that, that strategy worked really, really well for me. I never pitched my business. I never had to go out and get new business because what happened was, you know, I started off with those two clients and then people would leave those companies, go to other companies and call me.
0: Right, because they already knew you.
1: And that happened over and over and over again. I didn't have a pitch deck. I didn't have a brochure. I didn't have I had a business card, but I never had to get new clients because of that. So, you know, I have a whole, you know, strategy that I advise people on and and it really has a lot to do with how you leverage your existing connections and how to Grow a consultancy where you never have to pitch clients.
0: Right. And do you think anyone, not anyone necessarily, but people in a variety of industries can use the same type of framework then that you've done?
1: 100%. But the biggest mistake people make is they, because they can do everything, they think that that, their consultant should be this sort of umbrella broad thing. And I always say, you know, I know you can do it all. I know that you're a general finance person from investment banking, or I know that you're a general PR person. You could do PR for anybody, but you need to have a focus because that is how you're going to get the most business. And then once you're in there, you can be like, oh, and by the way, I can do XYZ also for you, but it should be a focus on an industry I mean, I have a friend, for example, she does, she's a PR consultant just for healthcare. Now I know she could do PR for beauty. She could do PR for a lot of different things, but she's very focused on that. So whenever I get an opportunity through a healthcare client that they want some sort of PR, she's the first person I call because I know I connect her to healthcare PR versus the generalists are usually the last people I call.
0: Right.
1: So So being known for something very niche is people think that's a risk and people think that that's the wrong way to go because you're turning down opportunities. But in the end, for the long haul, you're actually creating more opportunities for yourself. So the, the key is finding what that is. So for me, it was obvious because it was industry specific. And I realized very, very quickly that becoming an expert, a marketing expert in that Industry was very special and unique, and there weren't many people doing it. So that was my focus, and that worked really well for me. But not everybody has an industry that's unique. There's, um, you know, people I work with. There's a woman I work with who came from the beauty industry. Obviously, not unique, and there's a million people in that industry that do marketing. But she had a unique skill set and a unique rolodex of contacts. Um, at retailers, so that became her consultancy, where she helps up-and-coming beauty ba- brands um, expand their sales. Even though she can do every aspect of marketing, right. that that's her consultancy, and now she literally like turns down business because of it, because she can't. She can only take on so much. So that is the best piece of advice i can give anybody who wants to consult and sometimes it's just tricky figuring out what that focus is going to be and which focus has the most value but but once you figure that out you you'll never have to chase business
0: right you, you'll be known for something everyone like you said, the context you have can help you because they know exactly like, you are this person, you're this fit this niche, which then you can help you. are going to suggest them over a generalist every time, right? Same with the you know, talk about doctors versus like specific care, you know, practitioners are going to really be suggested versus a general doctor. Like it all depends on that. It's exactly,
1: yeah. ex- yep. it's exactly that way where it's like, okay, well, are you going to go to your internist for? you know, a rash on your arm? Probably not. You'll probably go to a dermatologist. Even though your your internist can probably solve the problem for you eventually. um, you're gonna go to the specialist. So it's it's very similar to that. Or, you know, it's and it's even even within specialties, you know, you think of like, you know, I've seen ads for plastic surgeons that they only do noses. (laughs) It's like that's the nose guy. Or like that's the breast, you know, surgeon. And so if you're going to get something done, you're going to go to that person who does it all day every day, like that's all they do. And it's very much like that. You know, those people don't have to go out and and advertise themselves over and over again because they're now known as like the nose guy. Yeah
0: because <laughs> I was used to be in the like, health and fitness industry space and one of the guys in there is known as the glute guy because he basically helps women develop better butts and it's like super... oh I'll,
1: I'll take I'll take that guy's uh, number thanks right.
0: and that's like he is known around the industry for that and because he has specialized in that and of course he's super smart and knows about everything in fitness right like there's no doubt in that but because he's known for that he gets his foot in the door and then Here we go. Talking about him on a podcast because I know that's what he's known for. Um, It's exactly what happens. So the importance of that can't be overstated. And you turned that into a business, though, eventually, didn't you?
1: So, okay. So I consulted for about seven years. That was the time when I was having my kids. It was awesome. But I always knew that that was a holding pattern. And I never wanted to grow that business because it was – to, I mean, that's not to me like an exciting, scalable business, even though my clients, I mean, the the amount of times they were like, you should, you've got to grow this business. This is a business. And I kept saying, I know it's a business, but I don't (laughs) love it. Like, it's just not what I want to be doing. Like, that's not interesting to me. It's great, but it's not interesting enough for me to grow it and scale it. So I knew that it was a holding pattern. And I knew that even from the time I closed that little old handbag company, I knew I had another chapter in me. Um, I just was waiting for the right time and the right idea. And I had many, many ideas over the years that, funny enough, most of them ended up being executed by other people. So I knew I had good ideas. So, you know, Rent the Runway is one. Like, I had that idea in 2003, but I was like, I'm never doing this idea. I'm never doing it. And someone else, thank God did, because I buy from them all the time. So, so, but, but, but I knew I had really good ideas because other people executed those same ideas very successfully. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going to wait until the right timing, until the right idea comes along that drives me enough to where I can get through the hard times. And what happened was um, there was this little election and, in 2016, and that election motivated me to pursue a business idea that I had for many, many years, which was to help women find more flexibility in work in their careers. I just wasn't sure what the model was going to be, but that was the underlying problem and mission that I wanted to solve after the election where where trump was elected i really kind of felt like well i'm not so sure that things are going to get better for women right. obviously there's no guarantees and i really i'm sure he means well and and wants the best for everybody but i i just kind of felt in my gut this is not going to move us forward <laughs> yeah. and this 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 um, administration is probably not going to be strong advocates for women and and work. Um, it was just my my perception. Um, you know, I'm certainly not here to get into a political debate, but that was just my perception of of that administration. So I said, now's the time. I am now going to basically leverage all of my years in consulting, something that I was. Very good at, and I'm going to help other women do this as well because I had total flexibility. I had a great income, I had great clients, I had a great lifestyle. It was, I mean, really the perfect career for someone who wanted to leverage their existing skills, their high level degrees into something that was completely their own and flexible. So that's how I started the upside. Wow.
0: And so you knew that that, that gave you the the motivation, the incentive to do to for the timing point of it in terms of starting it at that time. What did that look like in terms of getting that off the ground and making it into a thing and having the website and having everything?
1: So it's funny, because I being a marketing person and being someone who's really into branding and aesthetics. Whenever I toyed with a business idea, I actually started from what does it look like and then worked my way backwards, which is really an odd way to start a business, but it's the only way I can do it. I have to sort of see what it looks like. And if you saw how many one page websites I have, like drafts of different businesses, just to sort of that I toyed around with just to see what would the branding look like? <laughs> what what does it look like when I get it down on paper or on computer? What does it look like? So that's really how I started. I designed the logo. And I got really excited about the logo. I mean, this is how I started business. I literally got excited about the logo. I was like, I love that. No no debate. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) For sure. You know, I found a font that I thought was just perfect and the colors and the design and the name. You know, I also spent a lot of time coming up with a name that was, I wanted a name that was really positive and that, that gave people... A positive feeling, I guess you could say, you know, something that you can't say one thing negative about the word upside. It's a positive word. So, coming up with the name, coming up with the logo was really the first thing I did. And I know that that sounds completely the opposite of where you should go, but that's how I have to start a business. And then I started playing around with the copy and the website. And I said, okay, how do I describe this business? How do I describe the mission and what we're doing? And what kind of photography goes with this with this brand and 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 what what am i trying to convey to both businesses and potential consultants so that is literally how i started i started before i had the business model before i had anything i started with a a name a logo and a website and it helped motivate me to fill in the rest of the blanks.
0: You know, and to that point, I think it's interesting because people be like, "Oh my god, why did she start with those things?" But I would say this: having the self awareness to know what you're most excited about and what's going to drive you to continue is important. And you knew that that was how you you personally need to start a business. That's that's the process you need to go through, and it works for you. And great, like that's like that's amazing. I think it's one of those things where if. Someone needs to start a business in a different way, or whatever helps them move forward and make progress is fine, and I like that you mentioned that's where you started because I don't think it's always the the first thing necessarily.
1: yeah, you know it's funny because like I have other ideas too that I've toyed with over the years, and I even have some ideas now that I could do at the same time they, they sort of coincide with the upside, and I could do them at the same time, and I haven't pursued them because I don't have a name that I love. <laughs> Literally, like, that's why I haven't right. pursued them. Because without the proper name, or, you know, like, I can't move forward with it. It just doesn't excite me as much, even though the concepts, they will be executed by somebody, hopefully by me. But without the proper name, I feel kind of like, well, it doesn't have that ring to it. I, I've got to come up with a better name. So I For me, I have to work backwards from the marketing because it's the only way I can see the brand and see what the company really looks like and stands for.
0: How are people finding you for the upside or how are you finding clients?
1: Um, It's, you know, it's only been about a year. So at this point, my game is a quality over quantity game. So I I am not aiming to have 10,000 clients. I'm aiming to have a few hundred at the most. And my business model is really set up for quality over quantity. And the idea is it's really all about connections because here's the thing too, people do not, when it comes to hiring consultants, most people hire consultants that they know, people they've worked with before. So there's a, there has to be a level of trust an experience with that person. So only people who know me, who've worked with me before, who I went to college with, people, only people who know the quality of the work I do would trust me to place them with a consultant, at least to start. You know, my brand name, the upside is not the equivalent of McKinsey. Yeah. You know, you hear McKinsey you don't interview those consultants. You interview the company before you hire McKinsey. You're not into. You're not like, well, I want to interview every single consultant who's going to be working on my project. No, you <laughs> don't. You don't. It's you know, you don't do that. Same with a big law firm. You meet with you know the main partners, and then whoever works on your stuff works on your stuff. But it's the that that the company represents the quality and trust. And because we're new, we don't have that yet. So I have to build that, that quality and trust through people who already trust yeah. me. So that's really how I've been getting clients is going out to, you know, people, like I said, I went to high school with college with people. I've, you know, people I've worked with over the past 15 years and Those people are opening their doors and and giving the upside opportunities. And then through them, we then get referrals. So I get a lot of like, meet my friend, such and such. He owns or she owns this company and is interested in hiring a consultant. But it's only really through people who know me and trust
0: me. That makes complete sense. What does the day-to-day then look like for you in this business in terms of how are you spending your time on the company?
1: Oh, you know what, that it, it really depends. It, it's a it's a week to week sort of situation. And yeah. here's the here's the other thing. And, and I'm very open about this. You know, I'm not willing to sacrifice time with my family for for my business for anything. So basically, I, I work from eight to five. And once in a while, there will be an event at night that I go to, in the city, in New York City, and I don't see the kids, but it would have to be worthwhile. It has to be for something really good. I really, it, it's just not worth it. I have kids who are four and seven and, you know, I have one shot with them, <laughs> one shot, <laughs> you know, to get it right. And I'm just not willing to to sacrifice what a lot of people do for their business. So, um, so I basically work from eight to five, sometimes 830 to five if I take them to school. And, and, and sometimes I'm literally in my home office the entire day without even so much as moving except to go to the bathroom and eat something. Right. And sometimes I take them to school and then hop on the train, go into New York City and have three back to back meetings. But it's funny cuz i i whenever people are like well when can you meet i always say oh between 10 and 330 because i'm getting on that 418 train to make it home by 5 so that i can cook dinner and be with my family right and if so i don't care if google said well we can meet at 530 i would say i'm sorry i can't i'll have to meet a different day i mean that's just how i that is how i i treat my family. And that's how I treat my business. And I have to draw those boundaries. So day to day, sometimes I'm in New York City, literally like a nomad meeting, you know, back to back clients, or um, sometimes I'm meeting with consultants. And sometimes I'm sitting at my desk for days on end, just the infrastructure, um, stronger, you know, working on the website, working on um, back end databases and 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 rolling out new products,
0: you know, and with the family part of it, how has that evolved the way you work? Is it just a matter of you have to be very intentional with when you stop working every single day? that like you mentioned that specifically. Is that the main the main difference, the main difference from having a family versus not while you're working?
1: Uh, I think so, yes,. I have to I have to end it at some point. And set those boundaries for myself. Otherwise, I know I'm going to burn out. It's just, it's, there's a, when, when you have a family, it's a, it's a separate job. That's another job you have. And it does not end. There is no vacation from that job. So, I, at least when you care about them, <laughs> so when, you, when you actually put in effort, you know, it's, it's, wiping running noses and waking up sometimes in the middle of the night to calm someone who had a bad dream or taking them to doctor's appointments or you know having breakfast as a family in the morning and setting the day off right it's it's not it is a separate job I don't get a day to ever sleep in and I don't get a day to start except for today, I don't get a day to start at seven in the morning, because that's when we're up and getting ready for camp or school. So I have, I really don't have a choice. I have to set those boundaries.
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And moving forward with with the upside, what are you hoping to do with it? What's the plan? You know, the next few months, next couple years? What do you want to do?
1: Um, an ecosystem, and a support system for solopreneurs, um, really for women solopreneurs, because that's where there's there's, there, there's just a big difference between women doing it and men doing it. Um, I've just learned in, in just one year at The Upside, there's a big gap in how, how they each approach it. And, of course, I'm making a big generalization, but that's just what I'm seeing, because I have oversight in the whole industry And I can see, I see the men, I see the women, I see how they approach things differently. And I've seen how my advice has helped people. And I see that I, I, I pretty much know what I'm doing when it comes to consulting and being a solopreneur. So even though the main business model has always been matching companies with consultants, the, the future of this company is supporting those consultants. And so I'm actually creating um, my own community. The Upside has, it's going to have its own community in the next month just for women solopreneurs. It's going to be uh, very similar to dreamers and doers, but it's really only for women solopreneurs, consultants, independent contractors, freelancers. And the community is... It's 100% about giving and sharing of resources, because as a solopreneur, when you're consulting, you have no colleagues, and you, know, you don't have anyone to say, well, my client did this, what should I do, or I'm pitching a new client, and they put this in the contract, how would you handle? There's no one to talk to about those things. So I'm creating a community where these are your colleagues. You know, these are the the people who are going through the same things you are, who are having the same wins and losses and frustrations and excitement. And everyone's there for the same reason. And everyone's coming into the group with, with a standing offer. So there'll be hundreds of people in the group, and each one of them has a standing offer that will help somebody else. So we have an attorney in the group who, she's a solo Um, practitioner, and she's offering up contract templates. We have a PR person in the group who's offering up um, PR pitch templates. And we have um, a sales and business development woman in the group, and she's offering up sales templates, you know, pitch templates. Um, There are people who, there's a coach in the group who's offering office hours. So everybody has a standing offer. So now you have a community of a few hundred women, each with their own offers. So that library of offers is extremely rich and valuable and everyone wins, everyone benefits right. and everyone's sharing resources. So someone say, Hey, I'm pitching, I'm pitching Facebook next week. Does anyone have a contact there? And then somebody will say, yes, you know, actually, you know, my cousin works there or, you know, let me see if I can get the inside scoop for you. So if everybody's helping everybody, everybody wins. No one's in competition with each other. So it's a real win-win community. So that's really what I'm focusing on now is building that community. And we're, we're launching a retreat in December. Um, again, it's quality over quantity. It's not a retreat of hundreds of people. It's literally less than a dozen. And and it's really that's really my strategy. It's it's really all about the quality of the connections, quality of the engagement, and and not about just tens of thousands of people. I don't want to reach tens of thousands of people. I want to reach several hundred people that are 100% benefiting from membership and engagement.
0: Right. I love it. You know, there's a lot more I think we could discuss. I don't want to take too much more of your time. So what I'm, curious of is just what you think makes for a great career. You've done a lot of different things in your career, starting businesses, working for different companies, but like, what do you think makes for a great career?
1: Well, I personally think flexibility makes for a great career because once I had the flexibility to live my own life and to have a life, I enjoyed my career much better. So I think that, that when you're when you're chained to a desk chair and you're at a company where FaceTime is critical or FaceTime is valued, for, for me personally, that was just a dead end. It just did not go anywhere for me, and it didn't matter how much I was being paid. I didn't enjoy that. I would rather be paid less and have a life, and 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 have a have a balance of work life, um, even family, dating, whatever it is. Than, than just be grinding at a desk all day. Uh, so to me, career is much more about the lifestyle that it brings you versus specifically money or function or status.
0: Love it. Aaron. thank you so much for the time. I know obviously you have a family and a business and very busy. I appreciate every second today. Uh, I know we had some issues technically, but we made it work. Um, thank you so much for coming on
1: so much for having me. Tech issues, that is like my MO. So um, <laughs> I pretty much assume that's going to happen no matter who I talk to. But <laughs> but thank you for being
0: patient with it and, and thanks so much for having me. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind with Aaron Halper, the founder and CEO of The Upside. You can find her at betheupside.com. And all the show notes for this episode over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. Support the show over at patreon.com slash just go grind. Also leave a rating and review in iTunes. Just search just go grind. And leave a rating review over there. I would very much so appreciate it. Hope you enjoy all these episodes. Have a great day.